Last week, we kicked off this five-week series called Q&A, and it's a series we created by taking questions that uh, the congregation has submitted and categorizing those into some topics that we were going to address over the next five weeks, answering the question, what does the Bible say about? And last week, I mentioned that we had a wide range of questions from over here, the just curious all the way over here to some deep personal experience. And I hope over the remaining part of this series to just be helpful in addressing these uh, topics. And uh, today we're going to talk about a topic that actually all of us have experienced. We've all even wrestled or even struggled with. Um, It's caused a lot of pain and chaos, even dysfunction in our lives, in our relationships, certainly with God, but also our relationships with each other. Uh, The topic is sin. And actually, the question we're going to answer is this. What does the Bible say about sin, where it comes from, and the consequences of it? Now, I'll be honest, I was a little shocked. I mean, you had the opportunity to ask a question about anything, and there were several questions about, I guess, everybody's favorite topic, sin, right? Um, I don't know that I've heard too many sermons about sin. It's usually not on the top 10 list of things people want to hear about, and it's also something that most preachers don't want to address. But here we are, and so let's do this, right? Uh, Sin. I wish I could read well into the Bible uh, to find the entrance of sin. But actually, the entrance of sin comes even within just the first few pages of Scripture. A few ticks of the cosmic clock in, and what we find is sin. Uh, Why don't you turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, and as you do, let me just remind you that Genesis 1 and 2 record the perfection found in creation with God as the source and him continually commenting, it is good, every time he finished the day's creative work. He has created land and sea, sky, plants, animals, and the pinnacle of his creation is actually creating man and woman in his image to have a relationship with, for them to enjoy each other, and also for them to enjoy all the rest of creation. And after creating man and woman, he said those words, it is very good. Chapter three in the NIV translation opens up with the word now, but most commentators think it probably should read, but while the world's population is still two, we meet the arch nemesis of everything good, everything holy, and everything perfect. It's the devil, Satan himself, in the form of a serpent. And you might ask the question, like, where did he come from, right? Well, the Bible is very clear that Satan, the devil, was a created angelic being that existed before the creation of the world, but who rebelled against God. Most people think that Isaiah is speaking of the devil when he wrote these words, Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star. That word morning star is actually the word Lucifer, given a title for the devil, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down from the realm, to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Now most people also see that that is a fulfillment of a prophecy about the king of Babylon. 
The Bible describes the devil as a liar, as a deceiver, someone who's always been hostile toward God, working to overthrow the purposes of God. And that's exactly what we see him doing in the Garden of Eden. He clothed himself as a serpent, who at that point was one of God's good creatures. And it was said as he was crafty. He posed a question that questioned God's authority, his goodness, and his word to the woman. He asked her, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? His purpose was to alienate mankind from God. His name accuser is seen as he implies that God has withheld something that is good from Adam and Eve, something that they need, something better. He also attacks their identity of being created in the image of God as not good enough. Eve The woman responded to the serpent's question, not exactly with a quote from God. It might be that she didn't really understand God's instructions, or it might be that she just didn't want to remember. God spoke specifically about not eating from a tree, but that was specifically the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, if you eat from it, you'll die. He didn't say anything about touching The devil quickly intensified the attack by questioning God's very words, saying, you'll surely not die. He was promising sophistication. He says, your eyes will be opened. He also was promising spiritual advancement. You'll be like God. Isn't it interesting, the irony there? Satan, who was punished for wanting to be like God, is offering Adam and Eve the exact same thing. What hung in the balance between the question that Satan offered and the promises that God had made is really the essence of sin. It's obedience versus disobedience. It's trust versus mistrust. It's faith versus sight. God offered perfection, provision, flourishing through obedience, trust, and faith, while Satan tempted the man and woman with what was right in front of their eyes, if only they would doubt God and disobey him. I wish I could give the devil a little more credit, but I'll be honest, his tricks haven't really changed much since then. He uses the exact same tactics today to tempt you and I with sin. And also the essence of sin really hasn't changed that much either. Sin at its root is finding identity, satisfaction, even joy in anything other than God through disobeying God his commands, his principles, and doubting his promises and character, choosing our own way. Genesis 3, verse 6 and 7 describe exactly what Adam and Eve did. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The woman, left to her own natural desires and physical appetite, took the bait. It says that she saw the fruit was good for food. It was just a practical need. What could be anything wrong with this? I was really born to consume food. She says, I was pleasing. it was pleasing to the eye. It was attractive. It says it was desirable. That word desirable is the actual same root word that we get the word covet, which means seeing something that doesn't belong to you, but wanting it and working to get it at really any cost. This fruit was good for gaining wisdom. She would now be in the know. She would be arrived. 
There's a progression there that I hope you notice. We'll see it many other times as we work through this issue of sin today. In fact, listen to the words of James in the New Testament. He says this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. See that progression? There's desire, there's sin, there's death. Neither God nor the devil made the woman or the man eat the fruit. They had free will to choose. Like we mentioned last week, God gave us all the freedom to choose either good or evil. And the result of the choice that the man and woman made was both anticlimactic as well as cataclysmic. It was anticlimactic because nothing that Satan promised them ever came about. Both the man and woman saw the fruit and ate it, but they were spoiled by doing so. They were at ill at ease with one another. What came from eating the fruit was mistrust as well as alienation. And they were ill at ease with God as well. They were described as fearful and ashamed. In fact, they hid themselves from each other by sowing fig leaves. And they also hid themselves from God. Anticlimactic. But it was also cataclysmic. Because sin entered the world in that moment and nothing has ever been the same since. The promises of Satan never come true. Wisdom is never gained by disobeying God's word. And there are consequences to the choices that you and I make. The man and the woman hid themselves from God when he came to visit them and walk with him in the garden. It seems like something that occurred often, this relationship, interaction between God and the man and woman, but the Bible doesn't specifically say that. When confronted by God, they blamed each other and they blamed the serpent. And they were eventually removed from the garden. And in this moment, God's heart was broken. God pronounced judgment on the serpent, on the woman, and on the man. Let's read about that in Genesis 3. Pick up with me in verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and, offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. When I read this, I thought about my favorite type of snake. You know what my favorite snake is? Dead. That's my favorite type of snake. My favorite type of snake. Let's continue reading. The woman, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbirth very severe. The painful labor, with painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the fruit of plants from the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. The effects of sin brought death instead of life, pain instead of pleasure. 
Meager sustenance instead of abundant provision. Alienation and conflict instead of perfect fellowship and relationship. All of God's dealings with people as sinners can be traced back to this act of disobedience by Adam and Eve, all along with the repercussions that sin brings to our life and to the world around us. I wish Adam and Eve were the only ones who had ever sinned. But the fall of humankind seems contagious. It affects all people who have ever lived. Everyone created in the image of God, given free will to choose to love, trust, and obey God or not. And in the choice hangs the same type of exchanges when one chooses their identity and satisfaction and joy to be found in anything else other than God. The transgressions of the first human beings resulted in humanity's fractured relationship with God, a loss of innocence, and an entrance into a condition of sin which ultimately results in death. The Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, has a myriad of words that are translated to the word sin. Listen to what some of them mean. Words for sin are disobedience, rebellion, transgression, Breach of covenant, missing the mark, crossing the line, breaking the rules, lacking faith, breaking fellowship, rejecting the truth. All of those are symptoms of us choosing to let something else rule our life, often our own self, instead of choosing, allowing God to be the Lord of our life. Sin is much more than wrong actions, my friend. It's a state of the heart and mind that's at the core of every decision that you and I make. From this point forward, the pages of the Bible as well as human history are littered with the effects of sin in the lives of every human being who, given the gift of free will, have been incapable of making the right choice every single time, current company included. The two sons of Adam and Eve had a conflict due to jealousy, leading Cain, the younger, to kill his brother Abel. The world begins to be populated and humanity continues a slide caused by sin, coming to a point not too many years into human history where the Bible records this. It says, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I've created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I've made them. God chose to purify the earth with a flood that destroyed everything except the animals and Adam and his, or excuse me, Noah and his descendants that were saved in the ark. But even after the flood, Noah and his descendants were incapable of being perfect. The Bible records in general how humankind continued to find identity, satisfaction, and joy in anything other than God, sometimes sharing the names and the details of those choices and how the things played out, the ramifications to that person and others based on the choices they had made. Joshua 7 records the accounts of a man named Achan who disobeyed God by taking some of the spoils from the battle where 
the nation of Israel defeated Jericho. God had told them not to. But Achan thought that he would find something in a, a royal robe, some silver and gold that he took and hid in his tent, hoping that no one would find out. There's a progression here that I've mentioned already. He saw those things. He desired them. He thought that they could bring him joy, satisfaction, and identity, which he disobeyed God. He took the things. He led to sin. The nation of Israel was then embarrassingly defeated by a nation that was much smaller than them as a result of Achan's sin. When Joshua complained to God and asked him why Achan's sin was revealed, and he, his family, and all of his belongings were destroyed as punishment. You might be familiar with the sins of a man named David who committed sins while he was king of Israel. He was actually appointed king after a man named King Saul who had disobeyed God. And while David was known for many things, he's also known as that man who should have been out fighting with the army one day, but instead he decided to stay back in his palace. And while there, he was walking on the rooftop and saw a woman, a beautiful woman, who was bathing. I don't know about you, but I don't bathe with clothes on. And when David saw her, he thought, I want to sleep with her. And so he sent for her. She came to his palace. He slept with her, and he sent her back home. He thought it was kind of a, maybe a one-night stand until she sent a message that she was pregnant. And David had to concoct a deeper plan because now he had some things to deal with, right? And so he had her husband Uriah come back from the battle and he encouraged her, him to go and reunite with his wife just for the evening. But instead, Uriah chose to sleep at the door of his house instead of going in to sleep with his wife. And so, after a couple failed attempts, David sent Uriah back to the battle with a message, actually with his death sentence. The message told the commander to put Uriah on the front line and push toward the enemy and then pull back, leaving Uriah vulnerable. And Uriah was killed. Adultery, murder, lies, all the cover-up by a man who was described as being a man after God's own heart. Another familiar account comes in the New Testament. It involves a man and a woman named Ananias and Sapphira who sold a piece of property they owned and they made a contribution to the early church. But they weren't honest about the full price because they wanted to look good to all the early church leaders. They lied about the price that, of the field. And when confronted by Peter, they lied and they both dropped dead. I think it's interesting what Luke says to kind of wrap up this kind of moment. Acts 5.11, he says, Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. If I started calling you up one by one, and reveal to the whole congregation your sin, I bet there would be a lot of fear that sees this congregation. Lots of people will be headed toward the exit doors, correct? I wanna make sure you understand that sin is no joking matter. Adam and Eve introduced sin into the human experience by their rebellious actions. And the Bible affirms that every person who's ever lived since has followed their example. Sin's origin, is found to be in humanity's rebellious nature. And Paul, in his writings throughout the Bible, addressed the essence of sin and its consequences many times. Let's look at one of his more notable messages about this from Romans 1. Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. 
since what may be known about God is plain to them because God's made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has been made, so that people are with excuse, without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him and nor gave thanks to God. But their thinking became futile and foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their heart, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worship and serve created things rather than the creator who's forever praised. That last sentence is a pretty strong definition of what sin actually is. Paul actually quotes a variety of Bible passages later when he speaks in Romans chapter 3 and he says these words, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of viper, vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. If you were to trace back the original word for no one, guess what it means? No one. It includes every one of us. Then none of us are righteous. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Those words by Paul are really an accurate description of every person who's ever lived. Every generation, every civilization, including the current, you and me and the world around us. It's a pretty accurate description. It might, though, sound a little theoretical, like, what does it actually mean to sin? Is there any list that gets a little more specific? Well, I'm glad you asked. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 reads, There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. I want to be clear because somebody asked this. The list there are not the seven deadly sins. Actually, the seven deadly sins were proposed by Pope Gregory in the 6th century. And while Pope Gregory may be a nice man, he is not the source for what defines sin or not sin. In fact, there's no person who defines that. There's no church that defines that. There is one source that helps us understand what sin clearly is and what it is not, and that is the word of God. It's the only standard that defines what sin is and what it's not. In fact, when we read God's word, we can understand what the standard is, and God put that standard in flesh and blood by sending Jesus, who was without sin, so that you and I can know what that standard looks like. And when we strive to live and to love like Jesus, it's a commitment to living pure and holy, as much like Jesus as possible. But the reality is that you and I are plagued by sin. Paul goes on in Romans 1 to say some other words. Furthermore, meaning he's got a lot more to say about this subject, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain a knowledge of God, 
God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Let me take a time out here and make sure that the they you don't think is them. (laughs) The they is you. You are the they. I am the they. They have done things that not ought to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, which means extremely disrespectful. They're arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, which means they're not faithful or loyal, no love, no mercy. Check this last sentence out. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Finally, Paul's words in Galatians 5. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, which means an excessive indulgence in those things that are pleasurable idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And Paul says, I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Romans 3.23 says the wages of sin is death. This list, these lists include outward actions as well as inward desires and attitudes. They remind us of the many things that Jesus said, like don't commit adultery, but recognize that if you lust after someone, you have already committed adultery. Jesus says, don't murder. But I also say, Jesus, Jesus says, if you hate someone, you've committed murder. Sin is any activity, attitude, or action that is contrary to God's commands or disobeys his instructions. And before you think you're immune, listen again to what John has to say. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. We actually don't have the truth in us. We, if we claim that we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar and his word is not in us. That, my friends, is the essence and reality of sin as well as the consequences. I intentionally omitted a verse that was supposed to be included in those two things I just read. First John chapter 1 verse 8 says if you claim to be without sin you're a liar. First John chapter 1 10 says you make God out to be a liar. But in the middle of that is the good news. Listen to what John says there. If we confess our sin He, meaning God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The reality is that sin wreaks havoc in us, in our relationship with God and with others, in the world around us. When we seek identity or satisfaction or joy in anything other than God, when we disobey his word, when we disobey his instruction, when we choose not to love, trust, and obey God. But the reality is also that God knew that and made it obvious from the very beginning of time that he was a God of grace and mercy. At the end of chapter three in Genesis, before banishing Adam and Eve from the garden, God made garments of animal skins for Adam and Eve to cover for their nakedness. The fig leaves that they had made for themselves, let's just say were insufficient. They could not address the sin or its guilt. 
on their own. But God was revealing his heart of compassion and grace in this moment from the very start. The death of an animal provided to cover Adam and Eve's guilt. And God would later require the sacrifice of a a perfect animal and the shedding of that animal's blood on a regular basis by individuals as well as the nation of Israel as a sin offering so that they could be forgiven and not die as punishment for their sins. And finally, God provided a perfect lamb once for all, his only son, Jesus, who was sent to the earth to be the sacrifice for sin once for all. And Paul declares in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. Through Jesus, we can find forgiveness and salvation for the sins that we've committed. God is gracious and compassion, extending to us grace and mercy for the sins that we have committed as well as the ones we will commit, all while hoping that we will not sin. John continues his same thought by saying these words, my dear children, I write these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only just for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. It's amazing through scripture, you see the strong contrast about what the devil is for and what Jesus is for. Like John 10, 10, Jesus says, the thief, the devil comes to kill, to steal and destroy. But I have come, Jesus says, that you may have life and life to the fullest. So how do you and I respond When we recognize the magnitude of sin, not just the sin in the world around us, but the sin in our own lives. When we come to grips with the reality that we have deliberately and willfully chosen to seek identity, satisfaction, even joy in something other than God, which has allowed sin to take root in our lives, it causes pain and emptiness, fear, dysfunction, suffering to us as well as to others. We can take a good cue from David, who after trying to cover up his own sin, was confronted by a friend, a prophet, someone that God sent actually to confront David. And upon that confrontation, David admitted that he was a sinner. And then he pursued God's forgiveness through confession. And his prayer of confession is actually recorded for us. It's found in Psalm 51. And as we close today, what I'd like for you to do is just listen to the words that David wrote as a result to the recognition of the magnitude of sin and in pursuit of the abundance of grace and mercy that God offered him. Listen to the words of David. It begins in verse one by saying, have mercy on me, O God, According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. The basis of David's appeal for forgiveness and grace was the character of God. That he was full of compassion and full of mercy. And because of that, David begged him to wash away all of his filth and dirt caused by sin, to blot out or to erase all his transgressions that were many, to cleanse him from his sin. 
He goes on to say, I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. I appreciate the ownership David takes for his sin. He says, it's only against you, God, that I've sinned. But the reality is that David's sin caused all kinds of pain and heartache in the lives of many people. He goes on to say, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Have you ever noticed you don't have to teach a two-year-old to be selfish? Just kind of comes pre-wired. Seems like from the point Adam and Eve made their sin, all of us are, are prone to sin. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love is a, words of a very, very familiar hymn. And yet it's still not an excuse. David says, you are right when you judge. You are right in your verdict, confronting me and judging me as a sinner. And then here comes the appeal again. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquity. That cleansing, that purification, that that restoration that only God can bring. It leads David to pray this prayer in Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. That's not a bad prayer to start every day and to finish every day with. It's not a bad prayer to keep in front of you as you go throughout your day. God created me a clean heart before you. Renew a steadfast spirit in me, a desire to do good and not evil. The the tenacity, the steadfastness to choose to let you be in control and not me or someone or something else. It says, don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then, David says, I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are my God, my Savior. And then my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praises. What a powerful response to the forgiveness and grace that David received from God. A desire to help others who might be struggling in the exact same ways. A desire to sing the praises of the one who has rescued him from the sin that so easily entangled him and you and I. David closes by saying, you don't delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, Lord, you will not despise. This is a very powerful reminder that grace and salvation is something we could never earn. It's only something that we can receive. And something that we can respond to. And that's how we're going to close right now. We're going to actually enter into a time where we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we do that every Sunday, every time we're together as a community of faith. Because we never want to forget how big sin actually is. The magnitude of sin. That God hates sin. That God is despised when we choose to allow anything else to rule our life and sit on the throne of our life. 
And because sin is so disgusting to God, he had to do something about it. And so he wrapped himself in human flesh and came to our sin-filled world, not to sin more, but to eradicate sin. And he did that by placing all of the punishment that sin brings on the shoulders of Jesus who had never sinned. And that's what equipped him, qualified him to do what he could do about sin. Because he died as a punishment for your sin and mine, for the sins of all the world, John says, we can all be forgiven and free. And so right now, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we've actually given a few more minutes to this than normal. And what I would ask you to do is two things. First of all, recognize the magnitude of sin. I don't want you to offer just some some nice prayer like, God, forgive me for my sins. But I would ask you to follow the example of David and take ownership for your sin. I would ask you to not just bring to mind, but maybe bring to your lips the ways that you know that you have sinned against God even since you've been up this morning. Maybe it's how you acted yesterday or this past seven days. Maybe it's a sin that you know you committed in your life that you maybe just have never taken ownership for. Today is a great day to do that. Recognize how much God hates sin. And then recognize also that you can bask in the abundance of grace. That David actually was called a man after God's own heart after committing those sins. He was called that because sin is what we're all guilty of, but God is the giver of grace and mercy and it changes us from the inside out to teach and declare to others. And so, bask in the abundance of grace. Let God wash over you in his love and in the blood of Jesus so that he can forgive you, extend to you grace and mercy that you don't deserve, bring you salvation, and then respond by declaring his praises. I encourage you to recognize the magnitude of sin and bask in the abundance of grace as you remember Jesus taking that little cracker. And remember Jesus' sinless life, his body that was broken because of your sin. Remember him when you drink the blood that represents the power that brings us forgiveness and grace. Let's remember Jesus together.